Okay, turn with me to James chapter 3 and verse 13. James chapter 3 and verse 13. You know, anything and everything of value will be copied. Anything and everything of value will be counterfeited. Uh, we have friends who've lived overseas for many years, and they used to uh, bring us tales and illustrations of counterfeits that they had seen. I remember one in particular, they had seen a, a t-shirt, it was Mickey and Minnie Mouse, and there was a caption underneath it, and it said, uh, Mickey and Minnie are brave and, that's it, Mickey and Minnie are brave and, <laughs> I love that. Uh, you can great, find great illustrations of this too on the internet pictures, I thought I'd share just a few of these with you this morning. Is that a Gucci or a Gucci? Uh It's hard to say. It's hard to say. Uh, Adidas, I love that. I'd rather have Adidas than Adidas, personally. Um, and one of my favorites. Uh, are you sure that's real? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's real. It's a phony camcorder. And one of my all-time favorites, the wee-wee. You know, I would have loved to have gotten that for my kids, but they're reasonably sharp, and I think they would have figured that out, that that wasn't the real deal. If it's a value... You can find a fake. You can find a counterfeit. So it is with our topic this morning, wisdom. Wisdom has been counterfeited. Satan is the great counterfeiter. He can't create. He can just copy. And so he takes the good things of God and he twists them and he turns them and he perverts them. And he presents to the world a perverted version of some good gift of God. So it is with wisdom. Hey, wisdom is a good thing. We're told that all good gifts come from God. God is the giver of wisdom. He wants to give wisdom to all. We want wisdom, don't we? Say yes, say amen. Yeah, we want, we didn't walk in here this morning going, man, I hope I'm a fool, right? You didn't go, I hope I grow in foolishness that people think I'm a fool, they call me a fool. No, probably in the back of your mind, you're going, I want to move forward in life. I want to be wiser. I want to be known as a sage, I don't want to be a fool. Satan has take, taken God's wonderful gift of wisdom and he's, he's changed it, he's perverted it. And the tragic thing about it is Satan's counterfeit wisdom actually can work for you. And you can go Satan's way and in the short run at least, you can sometimes get what you want. And you can be fooled into thinking you're walking in a way of wisdom because you have accomplished what you wanted to accomplish. So how do you know if you are walking in the pathway of God, genuine, true wisdom, wisdom from above, or if you are following Satan's counterfeit, the wisdom that comes from below? Well, James is going to compare and contrast the two. Wisdom from above and wisdom from below. I want you to read with me beginning in chapter 3, verse 13. James says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Now, in the context, James is simply asking who wants to be a teacher? Okay, remember chapter 3, verse 1, where we were just a few weeks ago, started this section, and James said, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. James is returning to that theme, and he's saying, Okay, uh, who thinks they qualify? Okay, this phrase, wise and understanding, is actually used in several places throughout the Bible, and it refers to, to, to teachers. So you, you want to be in charge. You want to be up front. You want the power that you think comes with that, the authority that comes with that. Well, step on up and let's see if you are actually living and functioning according to God's genuine wisdom 
or the wisdom of the world. Now, before we dive into the details of James' comparison, let's look for a moment, look at, for a moment at this topic simply of, of wisdom. What is it? What is wisdom? If you look at all of the advanced cultures throughout the history of the world, they've all been enthralled with this concept of wisdom. The Greeks certainly loved thinking and talking and writing about wisdom. The Jews did as well. They have a whole section of the Bible that we know as the wisdom literature. And if you read James, you can see James was thoroughly steeped in the wisdom literature. It really shaped a lot of his thinking. Wisdom is a major theme that we can trace from the beginning of the end to the book of James. What is it? Well, there are three primary biblical characteristics of wisdom. The first is discernment. Read with me again chapter 3, verse 13. James says, Who is wise among you and understanding? The word for understanding is uh, literally discernment. It is uh, not necessarily related to education or intellect or credentials. It's not necessarily even related to age. You can have older people that are wise. You can also have younger people that are wise. You can have older people that are fools and younger people that are fools. Discernment is the capacity to see what's really important in life. To discern not just the good, but the best. It is a cutting between issues. And saying, this is better than this. That's discernment. We're told that Moses was very wise. Solomon was wise and discerning. Daniel was exceptionally wise. You want an illustration from Daniel chapter 5. One of Nebuchadnezzar's servants is speaking to him and he says, There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. Illumination, insight, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. An extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel. Wow, Daniel got it. You got a problem, talk to Daniel. He can figure things out and get to the heart of the matter. Once upon a time, there was an angel who showed up at a a faculty meeting. And he came to the department head in the midst of this faculty meeting and walked up to him and he said to this department head, because you have been uh, so, so gracious and kind and you have, have uh, led your department well and promoted the interests of others within your department, I'm going to grant you a request. God's going to give you a good gift. God will give you either infinite wisdom, infinite wealth, or amazing beauty, appearance that's remarkable. Without hesitation, the department head said, I want wisdom. The angel said, done. Boom. Just like that in an instant. There was a puff of smoke, flash of light. Angel disappears. He's gone. Department head just sits there for a moment. He gets real quiet and all the professors are looking in. And finally one leans in and says, say something. Department head said, I should have taken the wealth. (laughs) Should have taken the wealth instead of the wisdom. Which is, is is wealth better than wisdom or is beauty better than both? In Proverbs, wisdom is personified as a gracious, lovely woman. And she advises all who read. She says, Take my instruction and not silver, and knowledge rather than choicest gold. For wisdom is better than jewels and, and all desirable things cannot compare with her. Wisdom is discernment. It's the ability to know what is really most important and most valuable. J.I. Packer wrote, Wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose 
the best and highest goal, together with the surest means of attaining it. Wisdom is discernment. Wisdom is skillful living. The Hebrew word that we often see translated wisdom could really be interpreted skill in life. Okay, it's, it's skillful living. It's not just, again, intellectual pursuit. It's not just information. But it's knowing what is best and having the capacity to choose what is best in life. It's also a pattern of life. It's not just a single decision or a single choice, but entire pattern of life choices and actions. Certainly you can choose wisely or you can choose poorly at a given moment, but genuine wisdom is an entire pattern of life. Read with me again chapter 3 verse 13. It says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior. And that word for behavior is very popular in Peter if you're studying First Peter now. Paul uses it a lot as well. It's a word that connotes your, your external observable pattern of life. And James says, let it be beautiful. Show it. Show it. Let it be discerned by others that you have a pattern of life that demonstrates skill in living in all that you do. William Barclay said, wisdom is entirely practical. It's not philosophic speculation and intellectual knowledge. Remember, this is a biblical perspective. It is concerned with the business of living. Wisdom is knowledge turned into action in the decisions and personal relationships of everyday life. It is a pattern. But it can be counterfeited. And Satan's counterfeit wisdom will promise you discernment. Satan will speak to you and say, what really will bring you fulfillment in life is this, not that. Satan came to Eve in the garden and said, no, what really is valuable to you and what really will bring you satisfaction in life is not the whole garden, but just that one tree. Satan said, I have discernment and I know, and I know what God is keeping from you. It's that tree. That's what you need. That's what you want. Now, pattern your life around the pursuit of that tree. Satan has a counterfeit wisdom. And when she took the fruit and she ate, well, you know, in that moment as she reached up, it was desirable to her eyes. It was delightful. There was something within her that said, yeah, that is life. And in the short run, Satan's wisdom, his counterfeit, will get you what you want. But Proverbs says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it is the way of death. So how do you know? How do you know if you're walking according to genuine, true wisdom, wisdom from above, or counterfeit wisdom that comes from below? James is going to spend the rest of this chapter comparing and contrasting these two wisdoms. I want you to read with me again chapter 3, verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Let's look first at counterfeit wisdom. Where does it come from? Read with me again, verse 15. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but it is earthly, it is natural, it is demonic. Remember in the Bible we're told there are three sources of temptation, the world, the flesh, and the devil. They correspond to the three sources of counterfeit wisdom, which are earthly, natural, demonic. Earthly wisdom is that which pertains just to this earth. 
Not to the kingdom that is beyond. It, it, it pertains to just this period of time, not to eternity. It is short-term in its perspective. It's not eternal in its perspective. It is what man alone can figure out. William Barclay wrote again, it measures success in worldly terms and its aims are worldly aims. But if we have a biblical perspective, we know that this is not all that will be. But earthly wisdom tells you this is it. So get it all now. It is natural. Uh, Literally, it is soulish. And in Greek philosophy, the soul is what we shared with animals. It's it's just, in in other words, it's just your, your physical appetites. It's the same thing that we have in common with the beasts. It's what man, unaided by spirit, can figure out on its own. That's why it's frequently translated unspiritual. It's just natural. Third, the source is demonic. It's from Satan. James says it's from Satan. You know, I, and it's easy to blame Satan for everything, but you know, he is responsible for some things. Big things. Counterfeit wisdom. Where does it come from? It comes from the devil. Why did Satan fall? If you think about it, he had it pretty good, didn't he? <laughs> you know, he's, he's in the presence of God. He apparently was the most intelligent angel, consequently the most intelligent created being ever. He was beautiful. He was powerful. In other words, he had it all. He had infinite, well, not infinite, finite wisdom. Infinite beauty. No, he, he had great beauty. And he had wealth, in a sense. He had resources. But they were all finite. And he wanted more. He said to himself, what God has lined out for me is not enough. And so he chose a path of independence from God. And this wisdom, this counterfeit wisdom, the essence of it is trying to find a pathway to make life work that is independent from God. And the tragedy is sometimes it does work in the short term. But it's earthly and it's demonic, it's natural, and in the end it's the pathway of death. What does it look like? Read with me again chapter 3, verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. What does counterfeit wisdom look like? Well, first, James says it's marked by bitter jealousy. Now, interestingly, this word for jealousy here can actually be positive or negative. It's sometimes translated zeal. It's a passionate affection for something. Jesus had zeal for the house of God. He had a passionate affection for that. Uh, We're told in the Old Testament that Phinehas had zeal for the holiness and the glory of God. So it can be a positive thing. But this adjective tells us that James is speaking of the negative. It is bitter jealousy. Chapter 4, verse 2, it's translated envy. It is a passionate affection to have something that you don't have that someone else does have. And you'll do anything to get it. Bitter jealousy. In this context, those who wanted to be teachers were bitterly jealous against those who were. They wanted something they didn't have that someone else possessed. And it stirred up jealousy or envy within them. You ever felt that temptation? I'm sure we've never given in, but have you ever felt it? Someone else at work gets promoted. And of course you deserved it and the other person did not. 
you were qualified and they were not, but, but they received the promotion. How did you feel? Was there a temptation to say, I want that and I deserve that and I should have had that, but I didn't get that? And how do you respond to that person subsequently? Or if a friend or family member gets a new home, that's really nice. And you wish that you had that, but you don't have that. You're tempted, something stirs inside of you. Or maybe a sibling, a brother or sister is praised and you're not. Someone receives something that you don't receive, that you think you deserve or that you know that you want and you don't get it. Bitter jealousy is that, that seed, temptation that gets stirred up within us. That's what James is talking about. Second characteristic is selfish ambition. In the context, these teachers would do anything to get what they didn't have. Interestingly, selfish ambition, this word was used prior to the New Testament only by Aristotle. And this is what he used, this is what he described with that word. Selfish ambition. It was a self-seeking pursuit of political office by unfair means. And notice, the Greeks had a specific word that pertained just to this concept. A self-seeking pursuit of political office by unfair means. I thought that was pretty interesting right now in the context of where we are just a few weeks out from an election. You know, you just turn on your TV, turn on the radio, and you can hear selfish ambition. Right? It's in every commercial, every ad that airs. There's you know, just this little twisting of the truth. A minor modification to put down that wretched louse that's running against me who's evil in every respect, in his political philosophies as well as in his personal life. Don't elect him because... I'm righteous. I mean, you know, it's just, you know, really, is there truth in that? The Greeks had a word that described just that. Do anything to get what I want. Climb and crush in the process. Climb and crush. And it doesn't happen just in politics. The word was extrapolated to move well beyond the political sphere. It can happen in the office. You climb and crush. Remember the adage, reach the top of the ladder of success, only to discover it's leaning against the wrong wall. Climbing and crushing. And in climbing and crushing, sometimes in our jobs, we only, not only crush the people who we work with, but also our families suffer and they're sacrificed. This is what James means by selfish ambition. He says it doesn't just happen in politics. It doesn't just happen At home, it happens in the church as well, within the body of Christ. Third, pleasure-seeking. Read with me chapter 4, verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now that word for pleasure there is the word from which we get hedonism. It's hedonism. Counterfeit wisdom is driven by pleasure. It is soulish. It's of the natural man. It is of this earth. It is bodily. It is determined to please itself. This is the quality of counterfeit wisdom. Now, what does it look like when people live this way in their church, in their family, in their business? What does it look like? Again, chapter 3, verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Don't put the truth to a lie. First outcome is self-deception. If you choose to walk along this path, you're going to believe that this path is good. 
eventually. You will join in those who deceive, but you will also be deceived. You will say to yourself, I am genuinely wise because it's working. I'm getting what I want. Therefore, it must be true. Self-deception. James says, don't be a fool. (laughs) You don't have it. And it's evident by the fruit of your life. Second, there is chaos. Verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Turn back to chapter 1, verse 8. It says of the man who chooses not to receive wisdom from God that that person is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. That's the same word as in chapter 1, verse 16. Disorder, chaos, things are unstable. Maybe you've seen that in your own family. Maybe you've seen that in your place of work. Maybe you've seen it in your church. It could be sometimes just initiated with a single individual who is jealous and wants what he or she doesn't have and is selfishly ambitious and will do whatever it takes to get that. And what happens is that creates chaos. It creates disorder. It creates instability. Third, it creates conflict. Chapter 4 again, verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Those words that he uses there, quarrels, conflicts, fighting and quarreling, were literally used of battles and war. It's the terminology of war. So we ask ourselves, is James speaking literally? Were they, were they actually coming to blows in the church? It's hard for us to contemplate, isn't it? But then he goes on, he says, well, you don't get what you, you want, and so what do you do? Well, you, you lust and you don't have it, so you, you commit murder. That's a little shocking. Is he saying, literally, was there literally murder? Again, it's, it's hard for us to imagine. It's got to be a metaphor, right? He's exaggerating. It's hard to imagine that James would say, yeah, you know, there's some murders going on in your church, and you really need to stop that, right? I mean, there's got to be a little further explanation, We just can't imagine that. Why? Because here we are in the West. Kind of a middle class church. I don't even get a lot of amens. I get a few raised hands once in a while, halfway. We're a pretty subdued kind of group of folks here. It's hard for us to imagine. Did they really literally come to blows? Think about the history of the Christian church. In the name of Jesus Christ, there was a lot of violence. Think Crusades. Think Reformation. Think Inquisition. You know, in the Reformation, uh, there was one particular group of folks. They're called Anabaptists. Anabaptists. That means to be baptized again. These folks were Protestants. Uh, They were following the tenets of the Protestant Reformation. But as they studied the word, they believed that a person needed to be baptized again, not just as an infant, but as a, a, a consenting believer who really understood the gospel. And so they got baptized again. That was their process as they grew in their faith. Believer's baptism. But there were other Protestants who said, no, no, it's just infants that you baptize. And they got into a fight and they got into a quarrel. And the quarrel got so vicious, in fact, that Some of these folks who believed just in infant baptism came to the others who believed in being baptized again. They said, you know, you like water so much, we're going to give you all you want. And they drowned them. (laughs) No kidding. They killed them. Protestants killing Protestants. 
and Protestants killing Catholics and Catholics killing one another. You know, read the history books. Could happen. So is he speaking metaphorically? Is this an exaggeration or could it literally happen? Well, this week as I was thinking about this topic, I just stumbled on a video. It's short, but I just, I just had to show you this video. It's just about a minute. A violent scene erupted Sunday between a group of monks gathered at what millions consider one of the holiest places on earth. This was the scene at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre as Armenian and Greek Orthodox monks began to shove and push one another. The incident flared up as the Armenian monks began a procession commemorating the 4th century discovery of the cross believed to have been used to crucify Jesus. The Greeks objected saying the march should not begin without one of their monks present. That's when this scene broke out. The church, located in Jerusalem's old city, marks the traditional site of Jesus' crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. Two clergymen were arrested and questioned following the incident. For MSNBC.com, I'm Darrow Brown. Just like a Grace Bible Church business meeting, right? (laughs) Wow! Yeah, I stumbled on that. I thought, that's just too good not to show. That's uh, 2008. It's not even ancient history. That's 2008. It's in the center of Jerusalem, Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And what are they fighting about? Well, you know, somebody sometime back, 4th century, discovered a a relic, a piece that they think was part of the cross of Jesus. And so they have a, a procession in which they honor that. And some of the monks said, no, 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 we need to be at the front. Oh, no, you don't. Boom, boom, boom. You know, the video goes on. It's amazing. There's some amazing blows that are landed. These guys, are they've been training for this guy. It's, but toward the end of the video, you know, they throw all their blows and they stop and they sing, sing to one another. They will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Come on, guys, let's get together. No, they don't. They just, they fight. And those are uh, Jewish police that come in and restore order and arrest some of the monks. It really would be very, very funny if it weren't just so tragic. I think James is talking in hyperbole. I think he's exaggerating. But he's saying saying, this is the pathway. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if he had seen things come to blows, even. Because where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is chaos and disorder, and he says, and every evil thing. And if you have been involved in the church for very long, you have seen this. Maybe you haven't seen things come to blows, but you probably have heard horribly vicious words spoken, horribly vicious, that create chaos and disorder within the church, and sometimes the church splits. It's a very, very, very common story. And people are hurt, and they're hurt forever. Some end up leaving the church. They never want to come back to the body of Christ And the world looks in and they see what's going on in the church and they say, no thanks, I got that at home. I don't need any more of that. Jesus prayed for his disciples. He said, Father, I pray that they would be one like we are one. Father and Son unified. Father and Son loving one another. Son submitting to Father and accomplishing his will. I pray that they would look in and see my body, the body of Christ, and they would say, oh, that's what God is like. 
But when people want what they don't have and they clamor for it and they fight for it and they'll do anything for it, it destroys the church, it destroys the home, it destroys the workplace, it destroys departments on campus. Anywhere and everywhere where we buy into counterfeit wisdom and pursue it, it is destructive. So James says there is a better way. Let's compare the two. What is true wisdom and what does it look like? James chapter 3, verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. Notice first, where does he say it comes from? Well, it comes from above. God is the exclusive distributorship of genuine wisdom. You cannot find true wisdom anywhere but God, only God. You can figure things out on your own and make life work on your own in the short term, but you want to really understand what life is about and have true discernment of the things that are best, you can only find that from God. And he longs to give it to you. God is the giver of all good gifts. He is generous and he wants to give. Proverbs chapter 8, it says, I love those who love me. This is wisdom speaking again, this gracious woman. She says, I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. God isn't trying to hide wisdom from you. But there's one condition. Do you remember it? It's in James chapter 1. We looked at it at the beginning of the semester. James chapter 1, verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, just ask. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. However, he must ask in faith. Here's the one condition. He must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." The doubter is the double-souled person who has one foot in the world and one foot with God. That person, as a result, is unstable. And God does not reveal his wisdom to the curious, but only to the committed. So, when I come to God and I say, God, I want your wisdom, tell me your opinion, and after I hear it, I'll decide if I walk your path or not. God says, no, I'm just going to toss you around like the wind. You're just going to be driven thrown around, unstable. But if you say, God, I want your wisdom, and whatever you say, before you even say it, I'm in. I will walk your path. Then God says, let me give to you generously, without reproach, all the wisdom you could ask for, all the wisdom that you could need. You can become wise. You can become wise. You can become wiser today, wiser this week, wiser this year. You can become more discerning. You can live more skillfully. Just ask. Just ask without any doubting, without saying, God, just show me first and then I'll choose. But God, I'm all in. Whatever your path. God is the one source. He's the only source. What is the character of true wisdom? Chapter 3, verse 17. God's wisdom, true wisdom, is from above. It is first pure Then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. It is first pure. That is a word that meant uh, the person who uh, had, had access to God without moral defilement. There is nothing duplicitous in wisdom. It is all right. Then peaceable. 
It is the opposite of counterfeit wisdom, which creates chaos and conflict. True wisdom is peaceable. Next two words, I think, describe what it means to be peaceable. Gentle. Gentle. We often translate that meek, which is not weakness. It is strength that is controlled. Jesus said of himself, I am meek. He wasn't weak, but he deferred his rights. That's what meekness is. It's strength that is willing to defer. Think about the midst of a conflict and someone steps in and they're strong and they're strong even in their opinions, but they're willing to give in. They don't have to win. That is meekness. Reasonable. The person who is reasonable is persuadable. They'll actually listen and they have the capacity to change their mind right in front of you. They're not so proud that they must become entrenched in their own position and win. Think about a conflict again. The person who's willing to defer rights, the person who's willing to listen, weigh the arguments and actually change. That's the person who is wise. Person who is full of mercy and good fruits, that is, one who doesn't rush to judgment, who understands when is it time to apply the letter of the law and when is it time to show mercy and relent and give space. The person who is wise, wisdom from above, is unwavering and without hypocrisy. That's the opposite of the double souled person who's getting tossed around by the wind. The wise person is reliable. When you go to that person, you know exactly what you will get. They may be strong in their opinion, but their opinion is not self-serving. It is not self-seeking. It is not hypocritical. They are not playing a game. What you see is what you get, and it's always the same because it's a pattern of life. It's not a single moment of wisdom, but an entire pattern of life. This is what it looks like when you see true and genuine wisdom. And what's the outcome? Verse 18, the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I really like the net translation of 318. It says this, The fruit that consists of righteousness is planted in peace among those who make peace. When James uses the word righteousness here, he's not talking about Paul's concept of forensic righteousness, right? Where you are declared to be in right relationship with God. What James is talking about is the wise person who's walking according to wisdom from above, true wisdom, sets things right everywhere he or she goes. They create rightness or righteousness. How is that? Because righteousness is planted in peace among those who make peace, and the fruit is, or the outcome is, peace. That is not conflicts and chaos and disorder, but relationships set right. Have you ever known this kind of person? They step in in the midst of a conflict and people are at war and they're able to speak words in such a way that they bring reconciliation. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of God. That is, they will be identified with the family of God because God is a reconciler. God is a peacemaker. He took us when we were enemies and hostile, engaged in evil deeds, and he reconciled us. He made peace between us and God. He stood as a mediator, and he forgave our sins so that we could have relationship with God. God is a reconciler of conflict and chaos. 
He is not the author of disorder. And when you see disorder in the body of Christ or in a family, you know that earthly wisdom is being pursued by someone in the family, by someone in the church. And sometimes it only takes one to stir the whole pot and make the whole family or the whole church disordered and chaos. Sometimes it just takes one. Sometimes it just takes one person of peace to step in and bring reconciliation. And I can promise you, I know that there are many of you who've been around the church for a while and you've been in these settings, these situations, where someone is selfishly ambitious, filled with bitter jealousy and envy, and they begin to stir conflict and it spreads and it spreads. Sometimes the church splits. People are hurt. Sometimes they never come back. Community doesn't look in and say, I want some of that. No, no, I don't want any of that. That's why Jesus prayed. Let them be one. Now next week we're going to look a little bit at what does it mean for us to become these kind of people? To be peacemakers. Sons and daughters of God. What does it look like? How do we get there? We'll get very practical with that. But before we leave this morning, I want to give you just two applications. First, have you found the source of true wisdom? There's only one source. It's the all-knowing, all-loving, all-wise God. One true God. He's the only source. Do you know him? He says, this is the path of life. And it begins with coming to the cross of Christ, where Jesus died for your sins so that you could be reconciled to God. Have Have you begun that path? Do you know that one true source? I'd encourage you, if you've never said, God, thank you for giving Jesus to put me back in right relationship with you. I'd encourage you, if you haven't done that this morning, before you leave, a moment in prayer, just a minute, just go to God and say, God, thank you. Thank you for removing the enmity, the the warfare between us and giving me peace with you through Jesus Christ. Second, which wisdom is reflected in your life? If an outsider looked in and they saw your family or your coworkers, your workplace, would they say, that's wisdom from above or that's wisdom from below? I want us to take some time this week to just do a little little self-examination so we're prepared as we look at becoming peacemakers. Have we done some evaluation to say, you know, this is the fruit that I see in my own life. I'd actually like for us to take a few moments before we close, so a few moments silently before the Lord and ask God to begin to examine your own heart to reveal where you are a, a person of peace and where you've bought into a counterfeit version. A few moments quietly alone and then I will close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you as, as the one true God, the source of all wisdom, and I, I pray that we would have hearts that long for your wisdom, that are committed to following your path. I pray, Father, that you would open our eyes to places where we have believed counterfeit wisdom, it's earthly and natural and demonic, that may be working for us in the short term, but it It's the pathway of of death, not life. I pray, Father, we'd have the courage to face that and step off of that path and follow you. I pray, Father, for us as a church that you would guard and protect us from the attacks of our enemy. I pray that we would not experience chaos and conflict, but we would be people who are willing to defer our rights, to give in, just as Jesus did. As he said, not my will, but yours be done. and Placed his will below yours. I pray that we would be like that. I pray that we would be 
uh, people who are reasonable, persuadable. Pray, Father, we would become people who make peace. Lord, I pray that we would have hearts that are prepared for that message from James next week. I pray, Father, that people would look in at this group of believers and they would say, oh, that's what God is truly like. I want to be part of that family. Father, I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, great mediator and reconciler. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.